Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is photographer, co-founder of Media Ninja and Catchlight Fellow, Rafael Vilela. Rafael and I will talk about some of his amazing work from Brazil. He'll share the story behind Invisible Gravediggers, the forgotten workers of the pandemic. And he'll talk about his current work, Forest Ruins, which is an ongoing project that addresses the role of cities in the climate crisis from the perspective of the Guarini indigenous people in the city of Sao Paulo. Uh, Forest Ruins is what brings Raphael to the Catchlight Visual Storytelling Summit, which by the time this show airs will have happened. Raphael and Anastasia Samoylova co-hosted a panel discussion on environmental storytelling. And I believe you'll be able to listen to those panel talks at catchlight.io once they get everything up and published. And you can also listen to Anastasia and now Raphael as back-to-back episodes on this show. But before you do that, let me remind you that Real Photo Show is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. April's book was Undertow by Damien Dafresne, and I will be doing a preview of that book on the Instagram account at Real Photo Show. May's book will be Aurel Coupe by Julian Coquentin, and I don't know if I pronounced any of that correctly, but you can check all of this out at charcoalbookclub.com, where both books are still available to purchase, or you can join the book club and get future books automatically. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Well, hi, Raphael. Thanks for uh, joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Yeah. This is really nice because you and Anastasia Samoylova are going to be presenting at the Catchlight Visual Storytelling Summit, which is April 29th in San Francisco. Um, and you're, you're presenting a panel on environmental storytelling. And you are also a 2022 Catchlight Fellow. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. How did you uh, come to learn about that and Catchlight and... I first met Elodie. Uh, Elodie Malier-Storm, yeah. Who's the, the CEO, the founder, one of the founders of Cashlight. We met on the New York Times Portfolio Review. I was one oh. of the attendees and uh, I had an amazing review with her. Nice. And, and I could present this work that I'm, I'm working now with the Cashlight uh, Fellowship uh, support. And it was really those kinds of meetings where you feel there's something more to happen. And, mm-hmm. and she told me about the, the fellowship, that it's something that it's, it will be open in a couple of months, so I should look after. And I did uh, work a lot on my inscription, so I, I did put a lot of efforts on that because I was super interested on Catchlight itself besides the the fellowship it's an organization that i think it's totally connected to what i'm i've been doing in the past 10 years so i was really looking for and i was thrilled to to be part and and to and now to go to california and meet everyone uh, many of the other fellows and people from the organization and, and to be in their home uh, in right. their home space and to to, to share yeah and and of course I hope my question didn't imply that you came out of nowhere. You didn't come out of nowhere. You've actually had quite a, a successful career so far uh, in Brazil, uh, working for the Washington Post, National Geographic, Vice, Guardian, and uh, co-founding a really successful organization called Media Ninja, which is now Brazil's largest independent media platform. 
Yes. So I, I've been on the journalism uh, for 15 years now. Mm -hmm. I'm 34, so almost half of my life I'm I'm doing. I'm really focused on that. And and Media Ninja is an organization that uh, it's a journalism hub, an activist and journalism hub that that connects the news and and the stories through many different places from Brazil, because as you know, Brazil is like a continent such as uh, United States. Yes, and uh, size and, yeah, and yeah, population, yes, absolutely. 200 yeah. million people, so it's, mm -hmm. uh, really, uh, it's really hard to make everyone connected and, and to be apart from the traditional media system that in 2013 2012 we had like this crash on the on the traditional media outlets in brazil and all over the world and we had this crisis where people were not trusting the media anymore and mm. they were looking for the informations on the internet directly and media ninja was uh, one of many initiatives in brazil that was able to organize and to produce narratives and stories directly from the field to the social network so we were skipping the intermediaries we were just putting information directly to people where they were looking for so that was really important by that time and it grew a lot today media ninja has millions of followers yeah four and a and half million followers on instagram I saw. exactly yeah, yeah. i'm yeah. not uh working on media ninja anymore uh for the past three years but it's an organization that uh, has a commitment with people and public interest information. So it's something I'm really proud to be part of and for 10 years. And now I'm, I'm more on the first part you, you, you talked about. I'm more working with uh, international media outlets to right. try to bring stories from Brazil to the international public uh, audience. So I'm mostly working on one project right now that is sponsored that is, is sponsored by uh, the natural society and also and catchlight and also pitching independent stories and small scale stories to to vehicles and working with collaborations with uh, some newspapers such as the washington post yeah we'll get to the current project you're working on forest ruins and i also want to ask you a little bit about the work you did during covid which is really interesting but I, I heard you speak a little bit, and you mentioned uh, influences from Sebastián Salgado and National Geographic. And But going a little further back, what, um, when did you become interested in photography, or was it journalism? You know, How did that all come about? Perfect. I think it was photography since the beginning. It's hard to deny that. And uh, I was uh, 15, 15 years, I was in high school and I was just uh, looking for, for ways to, I don't know, to express myself somehow. And I, I was always a kid that draw a lot. I was always um, looking for, for stories somehow. And when I got my first camera, I was really a child and I, it was a magical meeting because for me, I, I found the way I could express myself in the best format. I don't know, because I was like this kid that was working with Photoshop before mm -hmm. photography. So I was doing many things in Photoshop by myself and I started to, to run a design, a junior design career. So I was doing website for people in my town. I was doing... Mm a lot of things on the digital art industry somehow as a really young kid 
but I did not, uh, I, I hadn't found like the language uh, to be in contact with the reality, I guess. And when I found photography, I, I found somehow an excuse to, to be with other people, to get to know other realities. And it was really amazing for me because I started to go to the outskirts in my city, to get to know people, to travel and having the camera as this... Uh, this excuse, this good excuse to, to be in other places, in other realities. So for me, it was really about starting to photograph my family, uh, in my, my house. I started to, I had like this digital camera that today is a dream because it was like <laughs> 24, 420 millimeters uh, mm -hmm. and was like uh, everything was possible by that time <laughs> in terms of lenses and it was really small. So I started to do a lot of macro photography, started to look my own place, you know. I think that was when it started, but... I came from a really, uh, how can I say, activist family environment. Mm. So environment. So my parents were, they were always uh, really activists from the health movement in Brazil and from the, the left-wing movement. And they were always, uh, they worked always with uh, workers' rights. And I was hearing this since I was a child in my head. So I was always looking for this kind of issues. And when I started to understand photography could lead me to, to, to look at this that I was hearing all my life and not only hearing, but seeing them like putting a lot of their time and energy to others. Uh, what, what kind issues. of work were they doing? They were uh, building political left-wing movements in Brazil in the 80s, in the 70s, oh, wow. 80s. So they, they ran away from dictatorship in the 70s and, and they were building the democratic uh, left-wing movement in Brazil that led to the assumption of the Workers' Party here. I was going to say, so that's the Workers' Party. Yeah. yeah. They were yeah. working inside the Workers' Party for a while after the, the movement grew, but mostly on the health uh, and the workers' health uh, area. So my dad was always like looking after these companies that were killing workers in their work. Mm. So I was always here. Uh, I was as a child, I was always hearing that kind of story and that inspired me a lot to like I was this young boy that had like a Che Guevara, you know, I don't know mm -hmm. the name, how you say, a necklace. The, the shirt? The yeah, necklace. Oh, oh, yeah. oh the, the, the neckerchief yeah. or the handkerchief. I have the necklace of, of yeah, Che yeah, Guevara yeah. and I was like 15 yes. years old and I was <laughs> thinking about other possible ways of uh, building other realities different, like uh, apart from the ones I, we have and Brazil mm -hmm. is a very unequal place uh, and country and we have uh, many problems and that was building my consciousness I guess from from the beginning yeah. of my life and photography was like this tool that started to go along with me and we started to travel in family and I was always bringing my camera and started to get to know people outside from these travels like the planet like they're working in the hotels or they're working in the communities and I started to, to work as uh, I didn't know yet, but I started to do some kind of journalism by myself right. for personal interest. Yeah, and of course, going back to Media Ninja just just for a moment, you you said you you know you pick up the camera and you 
you come from this sort of activist family and very much involved in politics and the Workers' Party. The camera itself is this tool of democracy, right? I believe so. And I, I happen yeah. to be alive in a time where we have like maybe the third or the fourth uh, democratization cycle of the photography with the smartphone mm -hmm. process. And I, I, we were always hearing about uh, how the Kodaks did uh, what they did in the past when everyone That's started right. to photograph by like paying $1 for the yep. pictures. And, and, but we, we, we happened to see something really bigger and massive in our generation. So when I started photographing, uh, when I was 15, there was no cell phones photographing, but it was the first digital cameras. So uh, I was able to photograph and learn uh, in a very fast pace because the digital process brings us this possibility of, of growing up really fast in terms of uh, the evolution of your language because you don't pay a lot for the films, you have like instant feedback from your camera. But after some years, we started to have photography on the cell phones and everyone has the capacity to photograph for the first time almost everyone so of course there everyone are has people yeah don't have ability to, to document and witness and reveal exactly and, you know so we that, see that a lot here yeah. that uh, changed everything and this is changing our way to do the work we do today and um, it's a lot different from the books i was so so I was in my family, my, my home, I was always looking for the, the Net Geo magazines and the Salgado's mm -hmm. books because they were there and they were really inspiring in terms of what photography can do or, or what you, you can live if you keep up on the photography and that was really inspiring. But what we had in that magazines or their books, it's a totally different reality from, from now. So. Uh, of course, it's a shock that everyone has to pass. And Media Ninja was this one of the many organizations in the world that uh, that used this new possibility of mass communication being done by the masses, not to the masses, and to expand the possibility of everyone using their cell phones as tools or as weapons of resistance. Also, yeah. So uh, this is a little bit of an aside. The election of Bolsonaro must have must have been so hard on your yes. family. Yeah, no, yeah. for for everyone in Brazil and for my family mm -hmm. and for my friends, and uh, it was a total disaster. And we had four years that we were suffering a lot. Not because, of course, the middle class not necessarily had a throwback as the, the the poor people of course who suffered the most is the the poor people in the outskirts in the villages they were the most affected by the the bolsonaro policy hmm. but it was also uh besides uh of course the pandemic that killed yeah. hundreds and thousands of people in brazil because of this government of course we also have like the the mental suffering of having a president like him talking what he was saying all the time and the, the possibility of always getting a worse scenario each day. Right. We could have the possibility of getting worse. When we thought it was over, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And 
when he in the the last elections when he lose i was really afraid of the possibility of him getting back uh, for more four years and that was and i saw all my friends and all my family like really paranoid and like suffering a lot because of this possibility and i think there's many many connections to the trump reality in the us of oh course. it was there were so many parallels uh, including the, that possibility of a of an uprising of of overturning the election at exactly. the end mm -hmm. right i think in terms of uh, us having trump and you having bolsonaro there was a lot we identified with yes totally and that was in terms of journalistic perspective was really interesting because uh, we had a phenomenon in Brazil that was already known in other parts of the world as the US and other places where you have this kind of right, extreme right-wing policies. And it was a story that everyone was interested in covering and hearing about. So Bolsonaro was our main theme as journalists for four years. And that, that has a good side that we had a lot of job and possibilities of working and, and showing Brazil, Brazilian reality. But at the same time, everything was rounding uh, Bolsonaro, was looking at Bolsonaro and depends on Bolsonaro in many ways. So uh, now we have a different reality, a different moment where you, you need to document, you need to make good journalism without having like this uh, bad guy to focus on. And it's a totally different, a new uh, perspective to, to journalism and a, a challenge also because people are mm -hmm. less interested in news and it's an interesting scenario. You have to be creative, you have to, to understand the reality besides only blaming one people and one, one person. So I think it's an interesting moment in Brazil. Well, I'm, go I'm going to take advantage of a, a more direct source of information. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Is it? Is it true that uh, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, just goes by Lula, right? Mm -hmm. President Lula, is, is not as committed to preserving the rainforest as I think people were hoping he would be? Or is that not right? I think uh, I say for myself, as someone mm -hmm. that is really critical about political power and the parties and all the problems we have in the, in the so-called democracy. I was not expecting so much as he's mm. doing in terms of environmental oh, okay. policy right now, because he just give a ministry to indigenous leadership, which is Sonia Guajajara, oh, wow. which is an mm. amazing personality of the indigenous movement. And and this is something really interesting. Marina Silva, who was his uh, minister in his first government, is a super connected environmentalist in the world. And she's, his, she has another ministry. And I think, uh, I think he's doing quite okay in terms of showing the world what he's up to. So we just have the Yanomami crisis right now, where Yanomamis mm -hmm. were dying. From uh, as a consequence from the gold rush in the Amazon, and and he went there. He he went with Sonia with Marina, and they they closed, for example, they closed the aerial space of the Yanomami territory, so the gold miners could not so preserve it. Right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. things things are going quite okay. I think Lula is a smart guy in terms that he saw that there is no other possibility mm. to 
to make a government in these days if you don't have a strong connection with the environmental issue because that's what the world is looking after. So Lula right. always was someone that was really connected to the world leaders, to the world questions, so uh, issues. So he he's, uh, I think he's quite intelligent and he, he's going to make this his uh, identity of this government. Maybe Oh, that's great. The, the, and it also goes to show you when you... With uh, our 24-7 cable news, uh, you never know if you're listening to news or just someone's predictions about what something someone might be, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. like so, you know, you hear those stories and it kind of gets in your brain and that, oh, maybe he's not going to be so great on the environment. And I, yeah. I didn't know if I, at this point, it's so hard to tell the difference between real stories and opinion and, and prediction mm -hmm. uh, in our cable news system. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm op optimistic. And he, he mm -hmm. was just uh, chosen for the time 100 persons, influenced persons. I of saw the that. Year I, I, because of that. <laughs> yeah. I saw somebody, of, yeah. somebody commented on Media Ninja, and this one's for real. It's not just a <laughs> it's fantasy. <laughs> yeah, because Bolsonaro would, would uh, make a, a fake uh, Times cover to put himself. Which directly came cover. from Trump. Yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. That directly came from Trump. But, so let's let's move on to the to the work you're doing. I mean, so okay. during during COVID, you did a, a project which a heart heartbreaking project called Invisible Gravediggers. It, it goes along with, I think, a, your larger body of work, which is about treatment of the worker and the importance of these everyday workers and, and how they're sort of discounted. Uh, so this was not only about that story about the worker, but also about the massive death that was happening at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, looking at my, like my journey on photography, when I connected, when I, I got this connection with the grave diggers, it was really... Uh, about looking to, to a category of people that no one was interested in terms in, in human uh, mm -hmm. terms because they were part of the global news every day. So the pictures of these men with white uh, clothes, like the chirurgical mm -hmm. clothes uh, from the pandemic, they got like they, they were the, the visible the visible face of the pandemic. It was like these guys burying people right. every day with their clothes and the max masks. Uh, but no one uh, took uh, the necessary time to understand who they are and, uh, and what they are doing and, and the suffering they were having as the guys burying people every day. So uh, they were usually like, I think in the collective perception, they were almost like the enemies, you know? Like if my mother died, she will be carried by these guys and they will bury her. And this it's is the this pandemic. association of this horrible yeah. thing. They become associated yeah. with, right? They became like the, the imaginary of the pandemic, yeah, the symbol. So yeah. and yeah. I, I, when I was in the Villa Formosa Cemetery, which is the biggest in the Latin America territory in terms of size and number of burials a day, uh, I was there to maybe to do the same that everyone was doing, like go there, make some pictures of people being buried and then you just get back home and you have pictures of like the daily picture of the pandemic. But I started to understand that they were really mad at the media. Mm -hmm. They were not able, they were not open to talk. They didn't have the, any interest to be like in contact with journalists or photographers because 
there was a flood of journalists there every day. People would come every day, take a lot of pictures, go away, and nothing left for them. And what the, what the fuck people were doing, you know, with their images and their realities. So I started to, I put my, uh, I, I got to myself the, the, the challenge of connect myself with them. So I started to go many days without even the camera, just to, to hear them. And I would do like some portraits of them, like beautiful portraits, like um, not a portrait from a grave digger working, but like their faces. And I would just throw to them on WhatsApp so they could understand that I was there to connect mm. with them mostly. And I, I got like really amazing uh, friendships in that period with them. And I understand that they were actually like, uh, they, they are like these uh, contemporary philosophers of our reality because they are the ones dealing with death every day, every time. Villa Formosa is usually, they have 30 to 40 burials a day there with, without pandemic. Oh. And because it's uh, in, a, in a outskirt where people are murdered all the time, like mm. life doesn't have the same value in the outskirts. And they are dealing with this all the time. And they are mostly black men from the outskirt with this really low paid work that mm. have emotional consequences. Many of them will become alcoholics and mm -hmm. will commit suicide in their lives. So this is a really harsh reality. But they are the ones thinking about life. I think in the pandemic was the ones thinking about life in the, the more amazing way because they were dealing with that so much. So right. um, they were always happy. They were always like playing jokes with them. They were burying someone. They are talking jokes one to the other because they, they had to create this this possibility yeah. of, of being alive, dealing it, with that. So they We call are, that gallows humor. Yeah, totally. Yeah. They were, they were yeah. like always light weight, you know, like you have like this light vibe where we have like, uh, they're always laughing. And, uh, and for me, it was really therapeutic to be with, uh, with them during the pandemic because it was, it was so hard time. And one specific Mario was one of the, the leaders of the, the great diggers. And he, he told me amazing stories and perceptions of, uh, of what was happening and the, as I said they were usually burying 40 people without a day without pandemic during the pandemic they got to 80 or 90 mm. people a day they had to bury with their own arms and and it was uh, uh, really touching to be with them and I, I tried to do that to, to show who they are they were and what they are doing and uh, how was their life before the pandemic and it, it was really I've, I've learned a lot with them for sure yeah and you, and you saw them as human beings so right exactly yeah right. and I got yeah. to have access to a story that I think everyone was passing by that were right to see them as the characters of the pandemic not as mm -hmm. the like this uh, bad image of, of death, you know, they are the, the, the grim reapers, they are, right. they are the lives of the pandemic, you know. And now for the, um, for the panel, will you be talking about forest ruins? Yes. So, um, forest ruins is my personal ongoing project is being like, I'm on the, on the third year. I started in 2020 mm. as soon as I, I, I I was out of Media Ninja and 
it was the first story I started to cover uh, in that period. And after one or two months that I was there, the pandemic hit. So I followed up with this story until today. And it's the story of the smallest indigenous land in Brazil, which is located in Sao Paulo, the biggest city of the Americas. It's bigger than New York or mm-hmm. Ciudad de Mexico. The city has 22 million people. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, like Ur- <laughs> yes, Ur- Uruguay has 3 million people in the okay. country. So it's a, it's a world of possibilities. And one of these possibilities of this huge country, which is Sao Paulo, is the existence of this really tiny indigenous land that is located. Uh, and for us, it's located inside Sao Paulo. But uh, listening to the Guarani population that lives there, the Guarani Mbia, they say the, they were there before the city. So they are not urban indigenous or anything like that. They are just indigenous and the city came to them. So right. this is the perspective I'm trying to work on this uh, story uh, of the original population that were in Sao Paulo before the arrival of the invaders from Europe and and how they they maintain their culture their beliefs their language even being surrounded by the biggest city that people will know in in, in the america today so within within sao paulo there's uh the atlantic rainforest area and there's only 20 percent left of this great rainforest and within that on the um uh i think it's called a uh, haragua peak Jaragua Peak, yeah. It's the highest Jaragua. peak in okay. Sao Paulo and right. it's uh, still preserved mostly because of the presence of the Guarani Mbia. Right, there's 700 so, uh, Guar- Guarini uh, left in, uh, among six villages inside this area. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's a, I was totally, I'm totally passionate about this because they, uh, the first time I went there and I realized there was something that people were not talking about was when I, I, I was there camping for one week. Uh, they mm. were doing a protest to, to hold a, a, comp- a construction company to build like 11 towers uh, like in their territory. And I was trying to sleep sometime in my, my tent and I, I started to hear the Guarani youth uh, talking and making jokes in Guarani all night long. It, it was like uh, if I was in another country and I hmm. actually, I was, I was in the mm-hmm. Guarani country. Right, in the Guarani, on the reserve, right. Yeah, in their territory. And, and kids will learn Guarani before they learn Portuguese until today there. And this is really impressive and at the same time uh, uh, the Jaragua peak as a, a reserve uh, is threatened by the city but it's protected by the Guaranese. So Sonia Guajajara, the, the actual uh, indigenous minister, uh, she said something that is really amazing that is uh, where you have indigenous population you have preserved uh, biomes. And so they are who guarantee that mostly. Mm. And my, my, the story is about my connection with them also as a, a white guy that was born in Sao Paulo uh, and didn't know about the existence of indigenous populations in this city. So it's, it's also about myself gathering with them. The, of course, the story is not about me, but it's my vision somehow getting to know a reality totally different from mine 
and and trying to show the the rest of the world or of people from São Paulo that they are there and they have their voice and they have their own media outlets they have the media Guarani Bia for example which is something that is also inspired on the experience of Media Ninja but they have their own Instagram page where they cover oh, their wow. own news and and the idea is how this uh, can be a, a project that is working on the traditional storytelling sense of making uh, a photo story that will be published in, in a magazine, but also generating capacity with the indigenous organizations and the media or indigenous media organizations. Uh, so I'm doing a series of workshops and trying to potentialize their communication um, uh, platforms somehow. And that is very much at the heart of the idea of Catchlight and connecting to journalists and journalism that is directly in the place and in the spaces and uh, in the cultures of the of the people and the lands in which the the you know the stories are coming out of right mm -hmm. totally and and sometimes it takes uh, an intermediate step right it takes someone who's not part of uh, that culture that not part of that region to create a bridge right yeah, I think this is something we need to question each day more. Mm -hmm. Why do I need to be there? And and I think it's something that, that really bothers me in a positive way that uh, I need to, uh, what's the sense of me being there as a non-Guarani uh, person? And I think the the idea of the bridges is really, really amazing because there's like this international connection that we are working to, to have... Uh, their visibility uh, mostly in the Bolsonaro era uh, it was really important to have international visibility because mm -hmm. this way you can have support because the, there were no public policies for indigenous for, for example in, in a long time and I think uh, knowing where to step in and also where to step out is really important in this kind of story uh, especially as I, I'm not part of the community I'm I'm, I'm building my relation with them and the, the project is of course is a result of the relation uh, it's not about the Guarani it's about that's why I say it's about my connection with them because uh, I'm not able to tell their stories actually because I'm uh, I'm a guy from Sao Paulo and I'm not indigenous so uh, they are the ones that can can talk their stories by themselves so it's about my perception as a white guy from Sao Paulo looking at this and say wow this mm -hmm. is here until today they are maintaining their 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 presence their culture and everything they are doing is much more connected with the future than the past so usually people think about indigenous population as something from the past something that is like ancient that is not like you know, in that, a bubble stuck in the past yeah and, right and they're much more connected to the needs of the world today than us as a, a globalized society that is destroying the world in so many in so many ways so they're they're like keeping the forest the animals they are taking care they're doing a lot of things planting their own crops traditional crops like they have like corns in so many colors that we don't even <laughs> know that were possible right. we just have the yellow corn and we think this is corn but the corn <laughs> has many colors and they they can maintain this biodiversity in their own territory even being so small and even being 
like right. uh, passionate by by the cityscape. Yeah, I think you mentioned at some point that they're they're a reminder that there's a better way to coexist. Yeah, totally, totally. I right. think uh, the pandemic brought us this reflection about our lives in cities, and many people got out of the cities during the pandemic, and they was able to that we were able to see for the first play, time in many in many that. Uh, there's other possibilities and the city right. is like a scar you know I, I understand the city like a scar it's not something that was meant to be it, it could not we cannot normalize the idea of the city as it is because in Brazil we have like these places like Sao Paulo with 22 million people but then you can travel days in the countryside and you you look like you, you see so few people because uh, we have like these uh, empty demographic areas where no one lives because the city do that. It just grab everyone uh, to the same problem, you know, and we don't work in the environment as we, there's no possibility of having sustainability in this kind of arrangement. And I think they, they are showing us that there are other ways to relate with the earth beneath them even if it's in the same geographical space, that's the thing. Well, like that's the here. thing. It's, um, you know, the debate we often have here is not the problem with cities, the problem with sub suburban sprawl, the problem with lots of little houses being built over larger areas, also destroying mm. land and natural habitats and the ability of water to go somewhere, right? Mm. Other than flood. Don't um, mm -hmm. And so... I don't think there's there's a sort of single idea as well. We all need to go back and and live in the forest, or um, we need to get rid of cities, or or it's only cities, or it's only you know. I, so it's somewhere just knowing that there is this coexistence that can exist. Somewhere in there is some kind of uh, compromise, some kind of answer to mm -hmm. you know the way we can both care for a natural habitat that we need to live. <laughs> one, and, one perspective that I'm and sorry. housing, right. Yeah. And housing, totally. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think one perspective that the connection with the Guaranese uh, brought me a lot is looking at our city as the environment itself. So we, mm -hmm. we cannot think that environment is something apart from our reality, right. that it's like far away in the Amazon, we need to maintain and touch it. But we, we don't look at our own rivers. They're passing by. They, they, we, we choose to make our rivers to become a sewer. And only oh, that they were the I, source. I of live between food. two of some of the most polluted rivers uh, oh. in the country, the 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 Hackensack and the Passaic River. Mm -hmm. I live right between the two of them. Yeah, it's a totally insane idea that like it's we had so insane, insane. Yeah. We had like food source, we had water source, we had transportation, and we just choose to make everything become sewer. And and it's it's totally known. It's like. It's the opposite of the logic that the the colonizer process thought like made make us think about. Like it's totally not logic. Like we choose mm -hmm. to to make tires uh, and to make to stop the possibility of the earth to to grab the water again. And there are so many mistakes from from our civilization uh, as it is. And and we're uh, paying for it now. Yeah, we're paying. We build all yeah. these problems for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
there's one thing that it's important to talk about the Guaranis is that they were the first slave population in Brazil before oh. the arrival of the black slaves uh, mm -hmm. in Brazil. The Guaranis were uh, doing all the work, so there's were also they enslaved by the Portuguese? By the Portuguese, yeah. There was many different uh, indigenous populations, but they were one of them that were enslaved. So this is also another. A face of the of the issue that uh, another uh, part of this issue that people are not aware of that they were mm. slaves. So there's historical debt with them, also in, in these terms, on not only environmental term but also in the social and the, what what the invaders did to them historically. And I think this is an important issue. Well, thank you so much for for sharing this, sharing your work which is amazing. And you have a, a website, uh, rafaelbilela.visora.co, uh, and where people can see more of your work. Uh, and good luck at the Catchlight Summit. Have a great time. Thank you so much, Michael, for the, the invitation and to be here and to, to talk uh, uh, openly about all these issues. I'm, I'm really happy to be there uh, with all you with everyone in the, the summit and I appreciate I'm, I'm really happy to share thanks again thank you so much bye everyone bye bye Real Photo Show is produced by me Michael Chovan Dalton music by Matteo Chovan Dalton you can find bonus content from the show on our YouTube channel just search for Real Photo Show the podcast can be found on all your favorite podcast players. And please rate the show with all the stars available on your preferred player. 